Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, how are you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's it with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. How the devil are you? Yes, it's Thursday, and this week, a uh, slight change. We're doing a bit of a recap episode, so it's an episode that you might have missed. It's one of our favourites, and it's with the wonderful David Morrissey. Now, this week, David stars in the third series of Britannia, which is on Sky and Now TV. Do give it a watch. But more importantly, and a big shout-out to Independent Podcasts here, David, uh, I think maybe last year started a new podcast it's called who am i this time he speaks to actors about like one certain role it may not be the role they're most famous for but it's certainly very interesting i was driving back from brighton last week and he had on the legend that is david warner um i urge you to give it a listen it is uh really fantastic um dave seems david's a bit of a natural interviewer as well as being an exceptional guest um so do get your ears around this now look nothing to do with myself or david or podcast or anything if you do need some new television i urge you to watch a new series uh, which is on sky and now tv at the moment we're not being sponsored by them um it's called The White Lotus. It's written by Mike White, who wrote a really dark, dark film years ago called Chuck and Buck. Um, but you'll probably know him better for starring in School of Rock. Uh, he also wrote it, directed by Richard Linklater, obviously. Great film. But yeah, check out The White Lotus. There is six episodes, all available to watch right now. And it will probably be making your... TV of the year list, no doubt. Um, right, back next week with brand new episodes. And uh, let's uh, roll back the years. No, it's only been a year, hasn't it? Let's, uh, let's go back in time ever so slightly and sit down with the exceptional David Morrissey. Griff was saying to me just before I came down to get you, and I had forgotten about this, that when we first started planning the podcast, we always draw up a list of who, and you were on our first list. Was I? Yeah. And now we've finally got it together. There you go. After all this time. Busy man. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, really good. I mean, it's been uh, a wild old year, but yeah, it's good. Good to come to the end. I'm looking forward to New Year. Start start things afresh. Yeah, he's got uh, yeah moving into a new house, so all that. So yeah, feeling good. The whole people. Although that sometimes it's quite exciting. The mood. Actually, move. I'm really enjoying it. I mean, it's sort of I made that decision that I'll throw things away when I unpack. <laughs> so take it with you. <laughs> so taking everything with me, but actually, I'm finding it really cathartic. Actually, and, yeah, and exciting. I'm finding it exciting. Yeah. Do you find that when you start new jobs? Do you like that? Right, we've finished that job and I've put all that energy and effort into it and we had that character and we had that time and that's gone now. Mm. Do, you, do you like that feel of starting afresh I all do, the time? yeah. I like, I'm a bit of a stationary geek, so every script I have I cut up and sort of, you know, I highlight my stuff. I do all that. So, and then I, what I will do is I'll put it into a 
book, an exercise book, quite a big book. And then I'll do lots of notes in the front of that, and then you'll get to the script. So I quite like that buying of this, the new book, a bit like a new diary, but a, a new exercise book to start a new character is always quite exciting. I quite like that. It's like starting having a new school book for the new, the new term when you're in new it class. It is, yeah, and that idea. And you never know where it will take you, you know what I mean? That sense of just not sure, not making any decisions, just absolutely sort of having a blank page. And then I'll start filling it with stuff like, you know, I'll read the script lots and lots, but I'll, I'll fill it with photographs of things that I just evoke. It's a bit of a mood bit. Yeah. And I'll start writing a bit of a backstory and stuff like that and then breaking the script down. And then when you, very often this happens right at the last minute, you'll get your shooting schedule. So you don't really know how it breaks down day by day or week by week until the last minute. And then what I'll start doing is working on my first week's work. And usually what I do is that I don't touch the the scenes I'm doing in the first week. What I do is the scenes before the scenes I'm shooting. So I'll always work on the stuff that has happened that I, I haven't shot yet before I walk in the scene, work on the scenes that I'm about to do. So it's always about where I've been rather than what I'm actually doing. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And how was school for you growing up, David? It wasn't great, actually. I was uh, I was not academic. I didn't really get on with school. I I changed schools a lot because it was around about when my parents were moving. So I went from one junior school, which was fine. I don't have a lot of memories about that, but I think it was okay. And then we went to this other school, and we were Catholics, and we couldn't get into the local Catholic school. So my mum and dad put me into the local C of E school, which was nice actually and very close. But I always knew it was transitory until a place came up in the, in the, the, in the Catholic, Catholic school. school. Right. And yeah. where was it? Whereabouts in Liverpool was this? So we moved, we lived in a place called Kensington, which was not far from the city centre. Right. And then we moved to Nottyash. It was one of these new estates. So, the, the place we grew up in was condemned, really. My grandmother had been married there when she was, like, a little girl, you know, when she was sort of 19 or something, she'd been married there. And she'd grown up in that house. So it was quite an old place. It had a... Excuse me. No worries. Yeah, it was quite an old place. It had a, it had a you know, toilet in the backyard, not inside the house, no bathroom. Yeah. So it was one of those places, and there were seven of us in it. Was the seven? Yeah, and a couple of cats. So all that was a bit. It was. A, it was a bit. So it needed to go. Yeah, I'm not. I don't have any romanticism about that. But where they put us was these new estates. You know, there was. They were all springing up all over. Really, there was like places like Netherley and Scamsleydale and stuff like that. Yeah, and ours was in Nottingham, and we went there. And that's sort of Duffcott, Old Swan, Heighton area, really. And, uh, yeah, that was... And my brothers left at that point as well, really. My my brothers had grown up by then. And where were they off to? So they were off to university and college and stuff like that. And then I, I left the CFE school and I went to a Catholic junior school and that's where I first started doing drama. That's the teacher at that school was... The drama teacher was really great. And we did The Wizard of Oz and we did, you know, Joseph and his amazing technical dream coat and all the classics and I played the the scarecrow in, in the Wizard of Oz and I loved it it was great and in my class there'd been a lot of lads who were good at football and stuff like that and even though I enjoyed football I wasn't great at it yeah but that thing of um, performing I really liked and then I failed my 11 plus and I went to the secondary modern that was attached to my junior school and that was more or less like the school in cares really you know it was it was just mayhem it was just my memory of it was it was fun just kids running riot but we didn't have any learning there was no I mean one of the things that was really my big memory of that time is you would never put your hand up in class to answer a question you know you would never stand out your whole thing so there was no sense of academic achievement you didn't want to stand out in a way even if you knew the answer to something you weren't going to be the swat keep quiet just keep quiet or make a joke or take the piss, you know, that was the thing. And uh, and during that time, my dad was very ill. My dad was gotten ill when I was about eight, really. 
And Jonathan sounds like a bit of a violin moment, this, but it's not. I mean, there was a point in there that I thought, when was I last happy, you know? And the last time I'd been happy was when I'd done The Wizard of Oz. So I decided to sort of seek out more stimulus like that. And I tried boxing for a bit, and that wasn't... I was never going to be a boxer. I just didn't have the skill, although I loved the, the world of it and I loved the training. Uh, but I certainly didn't have the killer instinct. And then uh, I discovered the Everyman Youth Theatre, which was attached to the Everyman Theatre in, in Liverpool. And that was it. As soon as I went through that door, I, I felt that it was my world, my tribe. My and tribe. how old were you then? So you then I must have been about 14, 15. And was this a weekend thing going after school? So then? it was Tuesday and Thursday nights and then sometimes. But what happened was it became all-encompassing for my life. You know, that's where I met my friends. And we'd all hang out nearly all the time. And we'd hang out around the theatre mostly all the time. The theatre had a bar downstairs called the Everyman Bistro and that sort of tolerated us. <laughs> and we just hang out, and then there was a cafe around the corner called Cafe Tobacco, which was at the top of Bowl Street. We just we'd spend like four hours over a cup of tea, you know, and we'd just talk and write. And it was the first time I'd met people of different uh, sexual orientations to me, different colour, you know, things like that. It was the first time I'd met people who were very, very different from me, different class sometimes as well. And it was a real mixture, and it was wonderful, and it was that thing for me of. I suddenly got a confidence in myself, which I took back into the education system. I would take it back into school and suddenly I would put my hand up and suddenly I would ask questions. And suddenly I was more curious. And that's the thing for me now is the fact that I always feel that the idea that in our state school system, music, art, drama, they're all seen as soft options. Yeah. And it really angers me. It makes me angry that in the sense that it doesn't, it takes no account of, good citizenship you know the thing about the arts is it, it asks you to walk in other people's shoes it gives you empathetic skills and uh, and this concentration on the on the more academics life i'm not saying you should ignore that at all but the more concentration on that the more i think it's an automaton sort of being that you're creating right? you see the thing is the two can work hand in hand because as you just pointed out there you didn't have that confidence in the academic studies to put your hand up, right? Mm. Suddenly you, you're hanging out with like-minded people, you're hanging out with people who are in your tribe who get you, mm. who feel different, and then you take that back in and suddenly you're putting your hand up. So that it breeds the confidence, you know. Totally. You don't have to do drama at school because you want it. You want to go down that path for a career, mm. but it will help. Totally. And, and to helps. shut that door on the kids is terrible. And also that sense of... Sure, no one's, not everyone's going to be an actor or a, a, a painter or a musician, but um, that education means that you breed good audiences, you breed intelligence, emotional intelligence, you breed people curiosity yeah. and appreciation of other things. And the other thing, you know, the, one of the other things I've always been very, very grateful for is I grew up in a city that took the arts seriously. You know, Liverpool really did. Of course, we all know about its musical history, but it took the arts seriously. It had great libraries and art and museums and art yeah. galleries and stuff like that. And and so whenever I told my mates, once I'd made the decision, <coughs> whenever I told my mates that I wanted to be an actor, you know, it wasn't received like I was an idiot or, you know, I had ideas above my station or anything like that. It was, you know, people accepted it. They didn't know how, how I would go about it. They had no way of helping me. And my parents, when I told my parents I wanted to be an actor, they it's not that they were down on it, it's just that they didn't know how to help me. You know, it was like telling them I wanted to be an astronaut. Yeah. They didn't they couldn't phone up my uncle Tony and say, Hey, could you help him out? or you know Even an apprenticeship. There's not it was just wasn't part of our world. So I and I'm very happy, very um, grateful for this, as I had to go and find it myself, you know. And it did exist. The other thing is when I went to find it it existed. It was a bus ride away in, in the middle of town. You know, that's where the great theatres were. With great people in it, you know, people like Alan Bleasdale and Willie Russell and, you know, and then actors like, you know, Tracy Orman was there when I was there. Was she? She was just amazing. You know, wow. She, she was doing Victoria Wood's talent and she was just amazing. And, you know, and then actors would come around like Pete Pothersweight and stuff like that and, you know, 
it just blew me away. It was just great, great people. You know? Was it constant education and constant inspiration all the time from being there? Because it was such a creative time. It at, was, that and also I was I mean, amazing because I've met a lot of these actors subsequently and been able to say thank you because that must have been a pain in the ass because I was constantly asking them, asking them questions. They they'd be there, you know, having their lunch or something, or you know, having a pint after the end of the show, and I'd be like, hey, 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 yeah, I want to be an actor. I want to be an actor. How do you do it? How do you do that? How do you do this? How do you... And and none of them told me to get lost. You know, they all sort of helped me. They all said, "Well, you need to do this. You need to do that. Try drama school. Get involved in this." Get it. You know, so that encouragement just by not telling me to get lost yeah. was fantastic. You know, and I had the great pleasure of working with Pete Pothelswaite uh, a number of years ago, and I was able to thank him, and he was great. You know, it was like really real generosity to to somebody who was a snotty nosed kid, really. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the next step then for there did you were so you able to then uh, when I was about 60 I left school when I was about 16 and what qualifications did you leave with I had an O level in, in um, history and nothing else I'd failed all my um, CSEs as they were called so I went to a different school to reset my O levels and that was a grammar school and I was aware about how different it was. All boys for a start, but it was uh, it was really a grammar school that my brother had gone to years before. But I didn't fit in. And my dad just before I went there, my dad died. So I was slightly like, you know, I don't want this. I don't, you know, I don't want. Any, I'm going to go off and be an actor. I don't want any of this. Yeah. So it was like a, a false year for me. But there was one teacher, Mr. Phillips, who was our history teacher, and he was a genius. He was just great at inspiring you via story rather than dates and times and all that. You know, he hammered those into you. But really it was about stories, and uh, and I really responded to him. And he responded to us as well, you know. I mean, his class did really, really well. So that was the only O-level I did. But just at that time, the Tory government brought in this thing called uh, YOP, yeah, youth Opportunity Programme. And that was basically to try and get the unemployment figures down. And they would pay companies to bring in young people who'd left school without qualifications uh, to give them apprenticeships. But actually, it was, it was really uh, abused. So most companies, a lot of companies would bring you in and just get you to make the tea and send you out for sandwiches. And then once your time was off, they'd get rid of you and you yeah. from the else. But the other thing they brought in at that time was the YOP, was was this, uh, Norman Tebbett had made this speech about, you know, when my grand, granddad couldn't get a job, he got on his bike and went looking for a job. So then the government had to back this up about, you know, sort of basically advocating people should break up their families. <laughs> so uh, he they brought in this YOP scheme, which was away from home. So if you got a job like that, but it was in another city. You would get paid 25 quid rather than £23.50. And I went in and I just said to this guy, you know, I want to be an actor. What have you got? And there was a theatre company in Wolverhampton called Zip Theatre Company. And they were looking for people like me, you know, yops. And I said, OK. And I, so that was it. I moved down to Wolverhampton. I got a little bed sit. And you were like 17 at this About point? About 17. Oh, okay. 16, 17, actually. And I had a little... Bed sit with a baby belling cooker in it and, you know, all that. And I went to work at this theatre company with a couple of other mates from Liverpool who also applied. <coughs> and, uh, and yeah, it was, it was a real eye-opener. It was an eye-opener not so much from a professional point of view, but from a personal point of view, but just about how I looked after myself. You know, how I cooked, how I washed my own clothes, how I, you know, my own environment, how I budgeted my life. Things like that. And um, and also, you know, how I got from one place to another and all those things. And then in the theatre company itself, we were doing, we were making sets and doing workshops. And so that. it was very much a community-based theatre. And we did a couple of shows. But the, the big one was we did the pantomime. Right. And we went, uh, we would do three or four shows a day. And we would start in a... Three or four a day. Yeah, yeah, in a little van. And we would drive around and we'd build the set, we'd do the show, we'd take it down, we'd put it in the van, we'd go somewhere else. And we did that. And because, you know, we were trying to get as much money as we were, we didn't get paid any more money. We just got paid our basic 
operate. But the theatre company and the guys who run it, they needed to get the money. So they were they were putting in as many shows as they could. And you were being pubs, you know, you'd be in youth centres, junior schools in the morning, and then sort of in the afternoon, maybe old people's homes, and then in the evening you'll be in pubs and clubs. Right. And John Very Ling- different audiences. Very there. different. And John Lingard, who was the dame, who was the head of the you know, the performance would change as the day went on. And probably as he got a bit more bevied himself, actually. But, you know, it got very bawdy in the evening. <laughs> and it was all very innocent in the morning. And then it would all start again. And it was a great experience for me about, you know, putting a show on your back and just going off and doing it. And then while I was in Wolverhampton, my best mate is an actor called Ian Hart, and he was still in Liverpool. And he'd found out that they were auditioning for this uh, TV show called One Summer, which was about two Scouse lads who ran away to Wales. And he phoned me up and said, "Look, you know, come home because the, you know they've got they've got some auditions." So I got on a train. I went home, and uh, the first audition was like Miss World. Really, there was about twenty of us with numbers. And the casting directors saw us and just went down the line and said, "Okay, you know, number five, number seven, number twelve, number twenty-two. Oh God, so we picked like that to start you, off. You with. can all stay. Everybody else goes. See you later. And then you would read a line, a couple of lines. Then they put you. It was because it was about two lads. They put people together, and that went on. It felt like it went on for months. It probably went on for a couple of weeks, and eventually I got the lead role in it, and um, and it was a life-changing experience. And you'd never been in front of a camera, though, before, had you? Never done anything like that. I'd done a lot of theatre with the youth theatre, but I'd never been on camera. And it was directed by a guy called Gordon Fleming, who's sadly no longer with us, who was a, a, a big film director. You know, he'd done big movies. And this was just one of the first things that Channel 4 were putting on. And he was a tough disciplinarian, you know. He was no messing around, you know. And that idea of how you tell a story out of out of chronological order yeah. the idea of continuity and I think a lot of people then on, on that job took it upon themselves to teach me and, and Spencer Lee who played the other guy to teach us our discipline really. and they really did and I suddenly and I took to it like a doctor was I just knew then this was what I wanted to do and the main elder, uh, adult actor in it was again someone who's sadly no longer with us was a guy called James Hazeldean right and he was a brilliant actor, and yeah. really brilliant. And he, again, you know, really took me under his wing and he taught me everything I knew at that time. I mean, he, a lot of people were saying to me, look, don't... It's a very strange noise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he would say to me, look, you know, a lot of other people would say to me, look, go to dr- don't go to drama school. You don't need to go to drama school. You've got your equity card now, you know, just just go into the profession and he was the one person who said to me no go to drama school did he yeah because he said look it'll give you a career it'll show you different things that you can do different ways of working different plays and characters and stuff like that and so I listened to Jimmy thank goodness and I uh, and I applied for quite a few drama schools but I got into RADA and uh, before before Rada, I took the money from one summer and I went travelling. I did a bit of travelling around the world. And then I came back and I went straight to drama school here in London, yeah. And would, at that time, would you have got a grant to go to Rada? So what I did was I got a grant to pay for the fees, mm. but I didn't get a maintenance grant, so I didn't get a grant to live off. Right. But thankfully, one summer, still, I still had some money from that. So that paid for me for a while. I worked in I worked in the college itself. I cleaned. We did a lot of cleaning in the morning, so that gave us some not some money, but it gave us a meal because there was a canteen there. So we cleaned the canteen and stuff, and so you get a free breakfast and a free lunch for that. So that was great. And then I did some bar work around that as well. So whilst I was at Grada, and that that supported me. And then just as it was all getting a little bit tense financially, which was going into my finals. Uh, they repeated once summer on the telly, and that meant I got this residual check, which was more or less my fee again. Perfect. And I was like, I can't believe it. You know, that you're paid twice for a job. Didn't even expect that. Didn't I see wasn't that expecting it, and it came, and uh, so that meant that I could a get through my f- last uh, term at Rod, 
but also it supported me coming out into the world for the first year. You know, I was able to sort of take jobs I wanted and, and that was great, you know, and then I sort of was able to support myself as well. How was RADA for you? I loved it. I, I, I really did. I found the first term I found really difficult. In what way? Well, I found it difficult in the sense that I found London difficult. I found London very expensive, unfriendly. You know, the thing about Liverpool is you get on a bus and sit next to them. By the time you get off, you know everything about them. Yeah. You know, and they know everything about yeah. you. It's a chatty place. Whereas when I came to London, I'd chat to people and they just looked at me like I just, you know, smacked You didn't get anything back. No, I didn't get anything. I remember when I first came out, I found it quite an unforgiving city. Yeah. Even though I was this wide-eyed sort of 17-year-old from Blackpool mm. and I was going, oh, the lights, everything, mm. I did find it quite unfriendly. Yeah, I found that. I mean, just unfamiliar, <laughs> you know. And rent was expensive and, and food and stuff. and So that was tough. I found at RADA that I was... My my own self-deprecating thing was telling me I didn't fit in, that these people were different than me. Then, do you think they, that was a... Sorry to interrupt. Do you think that was a class thing? Yeah. From was, where you were from? It was class, yeah. It was definitely about that. And it was about me thinking, uh, I'm not good enough for this. You know, these people have a different idea. This is, you know, it's posh. Yeah. And, uh, and I really put myself down in that first year. Well, for, not first year, but first term. So I, I would arrive in September. And then we broke for Christmas and I was miserable. And I went back to Liverpool. And I was thinking, I'm going to jack this in. I'm going to sack it off and just stay in Liverpool. And I didn't tell my mom that or my brothers. I was sort of holding it to myself. And I bumped into Paul McGann's mum, who is a wonderful woman. And I just told her. And Paul had gone to Rada. And I just said to her, I'm miserable, you know. And she just said, stick it out. She said, that Paul felt exactly the same, just stick it out. And I decided to give it one more time, term. And then when I got back in January to Rada, there was a note in my pigeonhole from Paul saying, hey, I'm doing a play at the Royal Court, come down, you know. So I went to see him and he was so helpful to me, not for the first time either. He'd been very helpful to me in the past. And I went to see him in a play at the Royal Court, which was amazing. And then I went backstage and stuff. So then I started to think, okay, I know people here. Yeah. And, then, and by that time, I got to know my other uh, friends at RADA, sort of got to know them better, and and that was good. And, and so I, I settled. And then I... And also I felt I could hold my own. You know, I was... So doing, you got some confidence got back. Got some confidence back. I got... We were doing very, you know, classic theatre. We were doing... Shakespeare and Molière and stuff like that and I thought oh I understand this I know what I'm doing I, I didn't I expect this to be beyond me but actually I, I really loved it and I loved performing you know and, and I loved the dance classes and the music classes and, then, and the camaraderie I, I really did and so that was um, it felt like I'd really arrived and I, I knew then and I, I, I sort of knew it when I was doing one summer really that I'd chosen the right profession for me yeah did you find it was making friends easy at RADA because, you know, people come from all sorts of walks of life and different backgrounds? It was, actually, yeah. I mean, it was um, it was intimidating at first. But all that intimidation, as always, is was in myself rather than within other people. Yeah. And when I met those people... And also RADA had a, such a mix, you know. So I was, in my term, you would look at the term above you. And the term above you, above me, which which was a brilliant term, and they all got on very well, and they were fantastic shows that they did. Rafe Fiennes, Jane Horrocks, you know, Ian Glenn, Neil Dudgeon, you know, uh, Jason Watkins, you know, Imogen Stubbs. So you know, there was people from very high parts of society, yeah, and people from places like me, and they all got on, and they were brilliant. And that was uh, that was a real comfort to me to see that you know there was no divide really and uh, and i love that that was great well we always look at the the other people yeah. go, oh well if they're doing it and then oh, well i'm from not far from there so therefore yeah. it's, like neil it's possible Dud neil dudgeon i mean watching neil dudgeon when i first got in and he was this great northern actor you know real man real great you know great range that he had and i would watch him and I'd watch him and Ray Fiennes together on stage. 
both being brilliant, but from very different parts of society. Really great mates as well. You know, they yeah. were really great mates. And I thought, oh, okay, that's, you can do this, yeah. you know. And likewise, in my term, you know, there was uh, men and women from very different uh, backgrounds and, and uh, classes and stuff. And, and we all got on. You know, it was great. Were you still as curious? Because you always sound to me that you were very curious back in the day, especially when you're the everyman that you're asking, you're having these conversations with these fantastic, inspirational actors. Were you as curious at RADA? Yes, I was. And, I, and also the great thing at RADA was we were encouraged to go and see shows. So we would go and see as many shows as we could, you know, in the West End. But also a lot of, you know, old RADA graduates and I would come back, you know, and you'd see them, and that was great. So, yeah, it was... Um, and London, you know, I really use. I started to use London in that way. I would go to a lot of exhibitions, and obviously you had to look for the free stuff. Yeah, but there was a lot on offer, you know. And then I would walk everywhere. I mean, I just walked around London, and you know, do you know those whole Dickensian walk stuffs, and and then there'd be places like um, the Scarlet Cinema. I used to do these all night uh, shows where they do like a horror all night. And that was great. You'd have a kip join The Shining or whatever and then watch, you know, The Blob. And that was great. And I used to watch a lot of movies there. And and being a student, you know, at that time, you could get, you know, you could get discounts everywhere. So there was a lot of stuff for me to see. And I really used London in that way. I loved it, actually. And still do. I mean, I, I find London a really stimulating place. Well, it is, but I think it's interesting your choice of words about how you use it, how you use London, mm. especially at different points in your life. As a student, you're going to use it very differently to yeah. how you use it now. Yeah. But now I use it, you know, I'm very thankful now about its green spaces, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's what I love about it. Richmond Park, Hampstead Heath. Which there are a lot of. But there's loads of them. Yeah. You know, for a major city, it's brilliant, you know. I mean, I was in New York recently, and, you know, they've got the park. That's it. Yeah. You know, I mean, everyone gets out, but that's a major city with one big green space, whereas we've got so many. And Regent's Park at, at the moment is what I use mostly. And it's just great. You know, it's so great. So, yeah, I do use the city. Were you prepared or were you given any tools for in your finals upon leaving? We had... Uh, we had this is a tricky... It's a tricky moment. It is. We had this... Uh, as I say, we have old students who come back and talk to us. And Clive Mantle came back to talk to us. Big Clive. Big Clive. And he'd been, he'd left like three or four years before. And he came in to give us a talk. And usually that talk, the way it was billed was he would talk about, you know, how your agents is, how you work with your agent, how you find an agent, you know, auditioning, stuff like that. And he didn't do any of that. He came back and he taught us how to sign on. <laughs> and how to sign on. And then well, if you've got a day's work, how to claim for that day's work without signing off completely, yeah. know, things like that. And it was a really practical sort of... And some some people in our term were outraged by it. Really? Yeah, they were really pissed off about the fact that he'd done that. And I went, that's brilliant. I think it's brilliant. Just exactly what you need. And then he would talk about agents and how you get them and stuff like that. But that was his main focus. And I met again. I met him years later. and Said thanks very much. He said, I can't remember any of that, but it was brilliant <laughs> of them do, him doing that. So yeah, we were sort of guided. I mean, the other thing they do at Rada, and they do it in most drama schools, is you have this one evening called a tree evening, which is where you you do two pieces, either a monologue or a duologue or whatever, and they invite all the agents from London and casting directors and stuff. So it's a massive audition, yeah. You know, and uh, and you know, if you get that wrong, it can. It doesn't matter what you've done in the last couple of years, you know. And uh, that was a good night for me, I have to say. But um, then you're inviting lots of people to your final shows. In the finals at Yorada, like most drama schools, you're just doing shows. Really. You're not doing classes, and you're writing and trying to get agents to come along and stuff like that. And I got an agent after the tree evening quite early on, so. I knew that in the, my last two or three shows, I, I, I was secure with an agent. And I got a job quite soon after that. But, yeah, I mean, you did get a lot of guidance about how to go out into the world. But nothing can, nothing really can prepare you like the experience itself, you know. That's the thing. 
But it's that exciting moment of graduation that you just want to get out of here, you just want to work. And luckily, you did get a job straight yeah. away. And it's also that strange thing when you get your first job as a drama school that if there's a part in it for an old person, it's played by an old person. Yeah. <laughs> like, not not your mate with a, with a grey beard on. And so things like that was really weird. And my first job after drama school was I had to go and do a Nigel Williams play up in Liverpool in, at the Playhouse in Liverpool called WCPC. And the first, so it was quite, it was a brilliant play. And I play this young copper who is uh, obsessed with the fact that, you know, all the people around him are are gay and are breaking the law. And he sort of finds out that everybody is gay in the, in the play. And he and I had to sort of, um, I had to kiss a bloke. I had to get wanked off by a bloke. I had to go, I had to dress up as Liza Minnelli in stockings and suspenders from Cabaret, do that. I had to sort of strip off at the end and sing YMCA by Village People. <laughs> and this was back in my hometown. And my mum came to see it with my auntie Pat, and I was like, "Oh God!" Uh, and then afterwards, I saw her, and they, God love her. The only thing she said to me, she looked at me, she went, "Have you been eating properly?" <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, thanks, mum." So that was wild, but yeah, so that was really, really tough. It was a strange show, but it was fun, and it was great to come back to Liverpool do that. And then yeah, and then after that, I did a play at Stratford East, which I loved, and then. Did you find yourself just constantly learning from job to job? Totally, totally. And then the big thing for me was then I got a job with Cheek by Jowl. Right. And we went on tour for a year, really. <laughs> and we did Twelfth Night and uh, El Cid. And um, it was a tough tour. In what way? Well, it was, again, three venues a week. And the venues could be like Newcastle, Bournemouth... Bury St. Edmunds, you know, so you were just on the road all the time. We had a van with us in it, all the company, which was like a minibus. And we had another van driven by the stage manager with all the the uh, set in it. We would have to do the get in and the get out and stuff like that. And uh, it was tough, you know, and it was tough being in a company like that, which was, it was a small company, but you had to be with each other for 24-7, really. Which is a tough ask for anybody. Yeah. And there was a lot of uh, a lot of fighting, but then a lot of, you know, a lot of love going off as well, then a lot of love fighting and <laughs> you know, sort of stuff like that. So it was a big old roller coaster really. But also we were a hit. Right. So we did Twelfth Night, which was our big show, and that was a massive hit. And wherever we were we'd go, we'd be packed out. So that was great, but it was also pressure as well. It was so crazy. And then we came and we went to the Donmar. We ended up at the Donmar Warehouse and uh, again, we saw that there. So it felt good. And you felt like you were at the centre of something really important. Yeah. But it was was hard work. It was graft. Uh, But I did love it. And then after that, I went to the RSC, which again, I just... Adored. How long were you at RSC for? So I was there for two years, really. So two seasons. So I got to Stratford and I worked with Deborah Warner, who I really adored. And she was fantastic. And I did King John with her. And I played the bastard Falconbridge. And that was great. And that that was like my first big Shakespeare role. I did a Shakespeare role at the Royal Shakespeare Company. And it was a hit. It did really well. And I thought, okay. Okay, this is this is opening up to me now. I I understand this, and my class isn't a barrier, which I thought it was. Uh, again, but that's it, taken quite a long time for that yeah, to realise that yeah, that it, it did, isn't a barrier. Yeah. That it really made me go, okay. I mean, I was still in my mid to late twenties, but I I realised, and this was with Deborah, really Deborah's help, was I realised that you know there was nothing I couldn't do in classical theatre. You know, it wasn't the domain of um, posh people. Exactly. You know, I felt felt like I was able to sort of really participate in in this great language and these great stories, and also, you know, in that in that season, and also in that production, actually, was Ray Fiennes. You know, and him and I would have these scenes where we'd have to have this banter with each other, just like these massive verbal battles. 
and it was wonderful, you know. It was he and I, and and uh, I'd always known he was a great Shakespearean actor. I'd seen him at Rod, and he was, you know, he was in the other play was in Much Ado and stuff at the, in the company. But with this play, you know, he played the Dauphin, and I played the bastard Falconbridge, and we would have this standoff, and it was wonderful. It was great, and it was a real uh, eye opener to me of of playing with the language. A, just understanding it, but also just enjoying it and, and luxuriating it and, and sort of having the whole uh, ability at your fingertips to play. And, and that was, I loved that. But if you're given the freedom. Yeah, it was a real, really great freedom that Deborah gave us. And yeah, I loved that. And that, again, was a big hit. So I was sort of on cloud nine and then I came to the National and I did Pier Gint, which Declan Donnellan, uh, who... Uh, did um, Cheap by Joe, who ran Cheap by Joe. He directed it, and it bombed. Well, I was going to say, you're dealing with the first hit, the second hit. Yeah. How do you deal when it's absolutely bombs? So that was the biggest lesson I ever had. And actually, I must say, in my life, things that have, you know, it's hard even to call them failures, but things that have not been well-received have been where all my great lessons have been learned. And we did pee again. We had something ridiculous, like 16 weeks rehearsal. And it just was crazy. And in the end, I think we left the, the good play in the rehearsal room. And it had a lot... It was in the Olivier Theatre. It had a lot of bells and whistles on it. You know, there's lots of scene changes and all that. And, and it didn't do well. And then we had to perform it then. You know, we just, from then on, you know, it opened. Not great reviews. We were being in the Olivier, which seats, what, 2,000 people? Yeah, it's all was massive. So we come in, there'd be about, you know, 100 people there. Oh. And I was always saying, can't you just get them to sit together? Can't you just no. get them to sit <laughs> in the middle, you know? But they'd be Couple all over the place. Huh? And actually, what was great about it was I then really started to play. And my my real philosophy then started to emerge that actually, not that the audience don't matter, of course they matter, but in the end what you're doing it for is yourself. That actually there's something inside these stories that you're challenging yourself with. That it's what am I trying to achieve? Have I done this tonight? You have to be aware of the audience and you know, you're know you're there to give it to them. But you're driving it, they're not driving. And that's the thing for me. And, and and in the end, the great thing about Piergim was I loved it because I started to grow and change during the produ- production. I started to change things that I'd been locked into in rehearsal and thought, I don't like this. I'm gonna... And really finding new things for me every night that I could challenge myself with and find new light and, uh, and levity in it and, and sort of suddenly find new darkness in it as well. And I, in the end, I just lived for it. I loved it. I, I never got to the theatre and thought, oh, God, I've got to do this again. It was like, can't wait to get on stage. Yeah, because if it's a slog, then it's and the I've, wrong thing. You know, thing. that thing of being on stage is really, you know, for me, it's the great thing. I love it. And I love being on a film set, I have to say, as well. I just adore it. So it's, you know, that it's not until you're in something that hasn't been well received that you know, God, I really want to do this. Because even then, you're still up there. And I loved I really had a, a ball doing the, doing the play. But, and you know, we, even with, throughout life, not just in the careers, when things... It's the things that don't go to plan. Yeah. And that's when we learn, and that's when we grow as humans. Yeah. And are, are you up for the fight? You know, are you up for it? And the other thing, you know, about Peter Gimp was that thing of... I'd go on stage... And I'd think, this is all I'd ever wanted to do. It's all I'd ever wanted to do. So regardless of what you think of it, I'm living the dream. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is, from when I was a kid, this is what I want to do. And here I am achieving it. You know, I'm on the Olivier stage at the National Theatre playing the main role in one of the great plays of all time. You might not like it, but I'm still here, you know. And that was it. And I, I loved it. I suppose if you didn't think like that, and you didn't want to grow, and you didn't want to learn, that shit's going to get you down. Yeah, it really And where is. does that... You don't want to be going to that dark place no. all day, every day. No, and I really feel that sense of... When, I'm, when I was on that stage, and, you know, 
with an empty auditorium. Who am I doing it for? It's me and the other actors. And we would just get off on it and just really have a great time. And not not self-indulgently, but really love what we were doing, you know. And that was great for me. How do you deal with the, the darker times? Because it, it, obviously it hasn't all been plain sailing, because it can't, because that's the precarious nature of this. Yeah, I mean, I inhabit the darker t- times too much, I think. I think the main thing for me was I always felt that um, creatively that there was no pain, no gain, really. I did feel that I had to inhabit the darker sides of myself. Uh, and I was... I had a tendency to do that, the melancholic side and the depressive side. So I would indulge that a little bit. Too much? Yeah, I mean, that was where my tendency would drag me to, you know. There was a, there was lots of things from growing up that I would keep very at the forefront of my being rather than sort of trying to deal with it, you know. There was abandonment stuff and, you know, lots of that. And then I would keep that in me. And and I had a real fear and a real suspicion of fun, really, or anything that was sort of up or that, so that I would have this... Yeah, I would worry about anything appearing to be frivolous. Uh, Because what I wanted, what I was searching for, and I said for it all the time, is an authenticity. And I think, and I don't think I'm right here. I think I'm wrong in the sense that I always associated authenticity with pain, right? And with uh, depression and sort of loss and stuff like that. That anything that was fun and joyful couldn't be authentic, and then that's bollocks. Yeah. But that's where I was at that time. Head, at that time, that you know, uh, and even doing comedy, I would look for the darker side of it, really. That's where I, I would find the truth. So that idea of myself of looking for truth and authenticity would drag me down a very dark place, really. And I would and I would indulge that. It was like a wobbly tooth for me. I could just couldn't stop sticking my tooth in it, you know. And it was like that thing of just needing to experience pain, uh, self-inflicted pain. You know? I would do that a lot. And when did you when did you break that cycle, or we, where were you? When do you acknowledge that that's what, what you were doing and that needed to change? I'm not sure I have actually, if I'm honest. I think I, and the acknowledgement is happening now. Definitely, I have the, I have a, an acknowledgement of it, and I can see. Like I don't drink, so I haven't drank for 14 years, and I think in that sobriety, that I've, that I've emerged into some sort of clarity of real thinking but uh yeah i'm still prone to it <laughs> <laughs> i still have a i still do do that thing of you know i will watch people who are in the street who are laughing and joking and sort of you know together i think how do you do that <laughs> well it, it is a bit foreign to me but i'm working i'm working on it Craig. <laughs> do you embrace happiness I find it hard. Yeah, I try to. I do. I mean, I'm much better at it now in the last two years, two or three years. I'm much better at it. Um, But uh, for a long time, if I was feeling happy, uh, I would think, oh, hang on a minute, this isn't right. It It would be an alien feeling. And I'd be trying to work on that. And also, I think, you know, there was a... I, I never wanted to... I always felt that the idea of being content was created death. That, that you... Being content in your life was the equivalent of stopping. Right. And I didn't want to stop. I wanted to carry on searching and, and discovering and uncovering stuff. Uh, and so contentment... Uh, slippers and pipe time was just felt like uh, it really did feel like retirement and what I wanted was uh, I wanted the flux and the mix and I you know so that chaos and and madness I was slightly indulged in I was wanting to indulge that and create that I felt that that was where the creative heart of me was 
was in the uh, <coughs> in the the sort of chaotic dance that I was I was per- perpetrating, and I don't think I've totally lost that. And the, the you know the thing about for me as an actor, and I mean you know this yourself, is I must like the insecurity of the job. Because if I didn't, if I didn't like the insecurity, wouldn't be doing you'd it. be off. Yeah, you know? you'd be on the in a desk job somewhere. So I like the idea that I don't know what I'm doing next year. I like the idea that you know it could be here, it could be here. You know, doesn't matter. I like that. But I also like the fact that new characters will come at me, and I'll have to work at them and find out about them, and sort of find out about their jobs and their lives, and you know who they are. I love that. And inside there is a is a real desire for um, movement and, and and sort of chaos and sort of discovery rather than sitting back and contentment and sort of relaxation, I guess. And you've still got that curious nature that you had way back in school because yeah. you had that confidence. Yeah, and you know. You would say, and you could say that underneath all that is a is a a fear of self reflection too much, a fear of stopping, a fear of looking inward, and dealing with the the stuff that you haven't dealt with for years and years and years. There is an element of that that you know for a long time I didn't want to look at uh, things that had happened to me in my childhood. And so what I did was I would go out, I'd be energetic and looking outward and new characters, new things. And I think over the last couple of years, I've been able to sort of go, well, hang on a minute. You've been running on empty for a while. So now you have to sort of start building this. And I hate the word healthy. It's not healthy. It's not unhealthy to be the other. Uh, I, to look at a more positive aspect of being a grown-up and a fully rounded human being, I guess. Do you think sometimes you used to throw yourself into the work to run away from something else? Yeah, definitely. But I would not tell myself that. I would feel that I was throwing myself in the world into the work to actually uncover, you know, to pick up the rock and look underneath it of yeah. myself. It just so happened that underneath there was uh, was a a very dark place, you know, and I would indulge that. So it didn't feel like I was running away. It felt like I was running into the mess. It felt like I was running into the sort of, um, the depression, I guess. Uh, and what I wasn't dealing with was the causes of. Because I didn't want to, I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to sort of uh, find out the answer, you know, I didn't want to be cured. I didn't want to be uh, free of it. I felt it was my mojo. Yeah. I felt that that was my creative hope. And if you're free of that, then you, what, you've got nothing left. I'll never be able to work again. Yeah. I mean, it's like when I got sober, I thought, oh, if I get sober, I won't be able to, I won't be able to work again. I won't be able to work without, you know, indulging myself in a drink or whatever, you know, I, I just... And actually, that was bollocks. It's you know, it just I still had all once, once I still, drinking, still had all the pain. <laughs> yeah. So you know, still doing that, but also you know, from another point of view, that looking at myself, I thought, I don't want, I don't, I don't want to erase this because this is, this is how I work. You know, these are the questions, and of course, you still have it all. It's not that. Yeah. No, it's not that. Was there any moment where you thought? Because I know what it means to you, and we've already discussed that, so we can tell that what doing this job means mm-hmm. to you. Was there ever a moment where you went, I-, I can't deal with this anymore, it has to go, I have to do something else? Yeah. Yes, there was, and that was... Um, there's been a few times, if I'm honest. But really honest. I mean, we all go, do you know what? No, yeah, no, there's this. been a few times when I've thought, I need to either take a break to sort out personal stuff. Yeah. Uh, and that lasted five minutes of my head, really. Yeah, you know that was that was an idea I would have and go, I can't do that. But the time I really thought, you know, forget it, was when I did Basic Instinct too. So I sort of got to a point where I 
got this major movie with a major film star. I was being paid major money. And I got into that job and it was like, honestly, it was like you could have said, told me to be a mechanic or something else. It was like a completely different job. In what, the job in, I was in, in what way? Just how everybody approached the job was different. Those big, big movies. Um, time was different. You know, I, I quite, I was hesitate saying this, but I quite like most of our television schedules that we have. Because it's quick. They are quick. But I feel like I'm on my toes. I'm on my toes. I think, okay, I can get... I'll probably, in this scene, if I've done my work properly with a director who knows what they're doing, I can probably get five or six goes at this. And then we might change the angle and that kind of... But that's probably what... So to get on a film set where you're suddenly doing it 70 times, it just drove me crazy. That you know, t- that you had so much time for a scene that you could endlessly discuss it. You could endlessly not turn up, or you could endlessly sort of change the set, or you could ch- that ability to do everything you wanted sort of killed me creatively. And the and then there's a lot of money around. There's a lot of egos around. They didn't feel to me to be this collegiate atmosphere which I was used to. One of the other things I love about my job is I get a family in a job. You know, I, I'll get I get on a film set or I'll get in the uh, in the theatre company, and you'll become so close to those people. so quickly, really quickly. Yeah, and then you then you're off. You yeah, know, like we did on those big films. It, it felt like that that company thing it wasn't happening. It felt really strange that you didn't see people and you only see them on set. There was never any banter. There was never you know, discussion. And that felt very strange for me. It felt very isolated. And actually, I kept turning around thinking, hang on a minute, this is what I wanted. I wanted these roles. I wanted, you know, big film roles. But it really frustrated me. And at the end of that, I felt quite low. Because in the end, I just thought, God, this is a massive waste of money. (laughs) And I was quite, you know, there's things that, the money that went on certain things, I was like, that's just ridiculous. And it, it pained me to see it, you know. Just mad things like the, the amount of food that got wasted. Just, and it really upset me. Yeah. And so I came out of that and I really... And then it went down like a fart in a spacesuit, you know. Then it came out and everybody hated it. I mean, and it was ridiculed. And I went to the States to do the junket and it was... A, it was panned. I was panned. Uh, everything. And the big thing for me about criticism, when I, when you, when I get criticised, it doesn't bother me if, if people criticise me and I think, oh, well, you just don't know what you're talking about or that's, you've, you've misread that. Or you've, but when they criticise you and you think, yeah, and I knew that at the time and I never said anything. Right. And that was basic for me. It was the, all the things they picked at which was script stuff, really, and, and, and certain, the way certain scenes were played. I sort of knew it as I was in it, but I was so naive, I couldn't go, well, hey, 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 wait a minute. Even though we were doing 70 takes most of the time, I was just thinking, this is killing my brain. I don't yeah. know. So it was a great learning curve. I certainly learned a lot from it, from a film point of view. But I, wa- I did walk away from it thinking, that's not the job I want to do. I don't want to do that. Job. But also you say that, before that, that's what you wanted, but you didn't know what it was. No, no, what you wanted no. really, did you? But you I loved what... films. Yeah, of course. You know, I loved watching those films. I loved. I mean, and the first basic instinct I thought was a work of genius. I loved it. So you know, they were my entertainment, and I would go and I'd, I'd watch movies, and it's such a wonderful thing for me. You know, as it's growing up, was going to those films, going to the Odeon and watching those movies. Great. So to be in one. And it to turn out to be, you know, uh, not a wonderful experience it was really heartbreaking. Really, I've since had great experiences and done those similar movies and had just a ball because I've known how to negotiate it. But at that time, it was my first one, and I was—I'm uh, sure it wasn't as chaotic as that sounded. It was just crazy, you know, really crazy. Did that change after that? Did it change your perspective on what you wanted from a career? 
not what I wanted from a career, but how I would be inside, you know, that how I would uh, create the atmosphere around myself that I wanted. I wouldn't be a hostage to fortune. So, you know, if I was in a, in a usually when I'm in the theatre or I'm doing a f- TV, I can have a discussion with my fellow actors and my and my director and say, hey, this is not working on this. Let's try this. Or how do you feel about that? Or play, you know, basically play. Uh, and on this film, I wasn't uh, that play wasn't happening. There was a real hierarchical thing, right? On. And I, I, you know, since then and uh, subsequently, I w- I've been able to sort of fight my corner a little bit, have my voice heard, uh, be a bit more of a pain in the ass, really, I guess, about saying, I'm not happy with that. And that that is a different side of me because when I've worked in the past, it's been, uh, and, you know, when you're working with companies, there's a, there's a collegiate way of doing it usually you know there's There's a a balance there's a balance and there's a company feeling and you know you all get on you're all there to do the same job there's a respect uh so i hadn't really had to fight for my voice in the past in the way that i did there and i didn't and I, i and i didn't fight for it i just let it go and i trusted people and then in the end i thought i i need to be noisier here you know that was that was the so again, still a learning curve doing something like that. Always a learning curve, yeah. I mean, really, I think the one thing that was different was I saw, yeah, I saw a waste of money. I mean, I don't care if the, if, if films cost a lot of money and you're seeing it on the set, you're seeing it on the screen, you know, that you can see it. But there was a lot of money there that just got wasted and I, I found that quite tough. Where were you within yourself after that? Was it quite... Because it wasn't the greatest experience, obviously, but did you feel quite deflated yeah, as I did. a person? I, I felt I took full responsibility for the terrible reviews and I I took a lot of responsibility for it and I felt quite exposed by it, really, as well, yeah. I mean, I got, I got quite a lot of funny stories out of it. None of which I'll tell you now, but uh, I got I got quite a lot of sort of uh, you know dinner party chat about it, uh, which made me laugh. But uh, you know because I spent most of my time naked in the in the film, which was hilarious. <laughs> but um, you know, it, but I I did feel quite exposed and on my own, where which I'd, n- I'd never done before. You know, all the jobs I've done before and since, actually, I would say, not that they're ensemble, but there's a group of people in it. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a real company side to it. And in that, I didn't. I felt like I was right on my own. And that was hard. And do you read reviews in general? I do read reviews, yeah. I do. I mean, I, I did Julius Caesar recently in, in, at the bridge and I didn't read reviews for that. Why? I, I just decided not to. I was... Um, I was having such a good time. And actually, you know, when you're in the theatre, I don't think I read reviews for Hangman either. When you're in theatre, you know, you've still got three months to do. So, you know, the, the reviews come out. And actually, a good review can really get you... Oh, yeah. ...misstep you as well. You know, yeah. you can be in a good review and it can say, oh, I love that moment when he goes... Duh, duh, duh. That it's, moment's fucked. That's never out, coming back. You're out the window. Yeah. Then. So... That's the thing for me. So I sort of protect myself from them in that way. Not because, oh, I don't read... And also the other thing about reviews as an actor, certainly in the theatre, is they've got nothing to do with you. Because, you know, you're only reading a review if you're thinking of going to see the show. If you're in the show, you've got to go anyway. So it's like, why read them? So I don't read... I didn't read them for that, and I didn't read them for Hangman. I do read them for telly and film uh, just because... Because it's in the past, because it's, it's done. There's nothing I can do about yeah. it. It's all boxed off. So, and it's about how this show is going to do. I think you know what people are saying about it. But in theatre, I tend not to, because they, you know, they can only good, bad, or indifferent. They can only fuck me up, really. David Morrissey, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And another episode is done. And what a belter to kick off 2019 with David Morrissey. What did I tell you? Do you know what I mean? It's the, when you talk with David, there's something beautifully considered 
about his his uh, ongoing conversation, and it's not that he's considered or guarded, it's that he thinks he filters through his brain instead of like someone like me who has like uh, a sort of a leaky bucket hole brain where it just sort of spews out. Um, and I love him, and I can't thank him enough for coming on and sharing. He didn't think that we're going to be delving into the insides of Basic Instinct 2, which was a belter of a moment. Um, so that that's it. Until next week, I've been Craig Parkinson. He's been producer Griff, and this has been the Two Shot Podcast. Take care. Bye-bye. Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers. Two Shot.